Hi, I'm the producer of A Public Affair, Jade Isiri Ramos. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the station. We take donations all year long at wortfm.org. Thanks. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Hello and welcome to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Nate Carlin and I'll be your host for this hour, subbing in for Carousel Baird. Today we're going to be hosting a poetry discussion with four poets that are participating in this month's Wisconsin Book Festival. We'll be hearing from Leslie Saints about her book, Have You Been Long Enough at Table? Then we'll talk with Alicia Dietzman about her book, Sweet Movie. And finally, we'll end with a conversation with Erin Marie Lynch about her book, Removal Acts. But our first guest is Taylor Bias. Her book, I Done Clicked My Heels Three Times, is a meditation on the meaning of home and the prospect of return, built around the idea of South Side of Chicago. She'll be discussing the book October 21st here in Madison. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. So I, I kind of want to start where your book starts, which was with the South Side of Chicago. Uh, what, what does the South Side mean to you? Yeah, um, Southside Chicago is, you know, where I was born and, and kind of grew up in the earlier years before my family moved out to the suburbs. Um, and to me, um, it's it's kind of a character. It kind of becomes a character in the book. Um, and it's this really special place um, that, that sort of holds both danger, but also, um, I think, raised me in part. And I think a lot of this book was as a result of me moving away from Chicago and not really um, encountering what other people thought and felt about Chicago until um, I had stepped away from it. And so then I, I think it just reframed my own thinking of Chicago, experiencing other people's ideas of it. Yeah, it feels like in your book, the, the other city character is uh, Cincinnati, which uh, I presume is where you, where you moved to. Uh, can you t- give me a little bit about the, the relationship between Cincinnati and Chicago for you? Yeah. Um, so I actually moved to Birmingham, Alabama first for uh, undergrad and my master's and in, in then Cincinnati, where I am now. Um, and Cincinnati, interestingly enough, is, is kind of a, a mix between the two for me. It's a little bit of Chicago and I, I feel like there's a little bit of Birmingham here as well. So it's been very interesting to be in a place that that feels like um, a child of, of the two parents, I guess, of places that I've spent most of my life. Um, but Birmingham in particular, um, since it's, I think, further away from Chicago, very, very different, I think more different than Cincinnati, since Cincinnati is still kind of Midwestern, um, people had very interesting ideas about Chicago and about me as a, as a result of being from there. Um, and I thought it was funny, but it also prompted me to think about the world in, in media, how Chicago is portrayed, um, and these outside understandings. So I think Birmingham actually was, was kind of the culprit for a lot of that thinking. Yeah, it is funny. I, I lived in Chicago for just a little bit, a few years, and people love to talk about Chicago in the Midwest. When you say <laughs> you're from there, they, they, they have their, their thoughts. <laughs> They do have their thoughts, um, and and some of them are not good thoughts, which was was which was very sad to me, um, as someone who you know is a young black woman when I was in Chicago, and Chicago felt so safe to me in a lot of ways, and and it felt 
like this this beautiful community where people looked like me, where we kind of all looked out for each other, uh, which is so contrary to to this idea um, of its danger, of this idea that you know everyone who's from the South Side is by default kind of you know a dangerous person, a thug in the words of some people. Um, so this book was important to me in in showing the complexity of Chicago and in, in showing the other side that of course you know people don't see who aren't from there yeah there's a real palpable love of of the brownstones and the seasons and the food and it it really it did take me back to oh yeah there's there's something special about chicago (laughs) there is something special i i think it's one of the most special places um to be um in this country for sure um but you know i'm a little biased as my last name would suggest so uh, the book is also structured around the Wiz um, mm-hmm. and sort of the idea of the Wizard of Oz, too. Uh, wh- why did you pick that as sort of the, the skeleton? So the Wiz, um, it's this first, it's, I think, a huge kind of cultural touch point um, just in the black community. But it's also just a, a, a family tradition, watching the movie um, and, and bonding um, over watching it together, the songs, knowing the words, singing them together. Um, and so when thinking about home in particular, I think the whiz came really naturally to me. Um, and then I think in the later sort of editing stages of the book, the structure of the whiz and, and how the songs kind of carry us through the movie then um, became this really natural organizing structure for the book as well. Um, so I think it's special because it it is this big part of home. It it feels really nostalgic and it it takes me back. It transports me back home in this very particular way. And then I think there there are a lot of similarities in the way that the movie moves. And I think the way that this book needed to move for me to tell the story that I I wanted to tell. Um, So it it kind of ended up serving a, a dual purpose for me. Yeah, when I think of the Wizard of Oz and the Wiz, I think of this idea of like of wanting to return home, of, of wanting to return to the home people, uh, the ant uh, figure, and I, f- I feel like that comes through a lot in your book too. Can you talk a little bit about what what homecoming and, and home construction, how, how that plays in? Yeah, um, I think home is is really interesting in the movie. That's kind of you know the the, the sole goal, right? That Dorothy has is I want to go home. Um, and, and then at the end, kind of realized that like, oh, I, I kind of had this this power to go home all along, right? But the, but the journey was necessary. The journey was important. And then you know we don't see kind of what happens or what state things are in when she gets home. The movie kind of ends, but we I think are coming away with the understanding that home is forever changed, right? It's not the same. Um, and I think that rings very true to me. Um, I, you know, have been away from home for, I, I guess, over 10 years now. Like, I haven't lived in Chicago for 10 years now, and I, I return very often because my family is there. But I think every time I return, it is changed in some way because of, you know, the the evolutions that I go through as a woman being away and, and, and the things that sort of happen in life. Um, and so I think there's something about um, always being able to go home, but but the sort of journey and the distance being kind of necessary um, in transforming what home looks like and, and what our lives look like. And, and so I think those things resonated with me thinking about homecoming um, and how it changes over time. 
Yeah, one of the recurring figures in your poetry is the figure of your father and the mother and also early um, romantic relationships and then finally your sister right at the end. And So I do think there's kind of this interesting desire for maybe like a, a desire might be a strong word but like a, a reminiscence of like this like period of your life from like 16 to 18 or somewhere in there uh, did, mm-hmm. you, did you have that feeling when you were writing it or you know i didn't have a sort of age range in mind um like at the beginning for example a lot of those poems um they I, I you know they feel kind of like amorphous when it comes to what age the speaker could be i feel like you know black varying for example feels like it could be a very early speaker um but I, I think a lot of the poems do kind of settle into a teenage to to young adult um voice and i, I think also because the book is very much a coming of age story i think too um and so naturally um i'm focused on those moments where uh I'm learning a lot about myself. Um, very, I think, impressionable, and I don't mean that in the negative sense, but just that I'm absorbing kind of everything around me, and, and everything um, has the the capability to shape me in ways that maybe it doesn't now that I'm older. So I, I definitely think that's true, just by nature of kind of the sort of story that it is. Sure. Yeah, and and the figure of the father, especially like a, this sort of alcohol inflected father, is, is very central. Um, yeah, do you, want, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, thinking about you know the, the stage of my life from from teenager to a young adult, um, I think my my father's alcoholism played a, a huge part in my family dynamics and the ways that our family kind of fell apart and how we had to reconfigure those dynamics um, in the aftermath of my parents' divorce. Um, And as a result, you know, I had to take on different roles within my family. I was an older sister. I was a second mother. You know, I was a a friend and and maybe even, I think, kind of a partial parent to my mom at times. And so there are all these all these ways, all these different types of emotional labor that I had to take on, I think, as a result. Um, And I think all of these ways that I thought about and still continue to think about love and and how I see even romantic relationships. And and so, you know, I think there's a way that like home continues to just kind of show up in everything that you do. And my father's alcoholism is is very much a part of that. and And it continues to show up in who I am. And I think this this book was partially um, an attempt to like learn how to accept those parts of me um, that come from him, that come from that home, and um, learning how to to love those parts that that I think were maybe hard to love um, before. Yeah, there's this really wonderful poem in your book where you're feeling the call from your father as an adult with him sort of sort of asking for forgiveness or just like recognition and, and how much of a struggle that is to give and, and I don't know I just, that just felt like very resonant to me I, I know a lot of people that have had that relationship with their parents uh mm-hmm. it just it felt like an adult coming to terms with their father <laughs> yeah yeah um and there's and there's something I think very bittersweet about that um seeing our parents as human <laughs> when we get older you know there's there's a way that we that that things just kind of click into place and we kind of understand them in these new ways that um, can be kind of sad at times, but also I think are are really empowering as well. All right. Well, um, so you're going to be coming to Wisconsin in a couple weeks. Uh, yes. what, what does that look like? 
Yeah, so I um, am going to be reading from my collection, which I'm very, very, very excited about. Um, so if you guys are you know, around for the Wisconsin Book Festival, I would love to see you. Um, you can hear me read some of the poems. I'm sure there'll be time to ask some questions. Um, and then hopefully you can snag a copy if you haven't already. Yeah, it'll be October 21st at the Central Library, which is just a few blocks from here. Oh, look at that. <laughs> do, do you enjoy uh, reading your poetry out loud or is it a little rough? I love it. Um, I love performing. I love reading. Um, I think you know, the, the nerves never go away, for sure. And, you know, always the little stage fright at the beginning. But um, I think it takes me less time to, to shake them off now. And, and I can I can hop right into it much faster. But I love reading. It's one of my favorite things. And, um, yeah, I hope people are there to hear. Yeah, I, f I feel like poetry is one of those ones. I mean, some of your poems are so spoken, and then some of them are so, like, structural. <laughs> so you have to pick uh, which ones to read out loud. They don't all recommend themselves <laughs> i you know i think so and then i will read one that i've never read out loud before um and then i'll like really enjoy it and so, and so I've, I've been discovering new poems that i'm like really enjoying to read out loud and that's been an, another really fun thing about um having this book out in the world and, and having the opportunity to share it with people all right wonderful well thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today taylor uh, if you're just joining us, this is A Public Affair on WORT. I was just talking about the, uh, the book I Done Clicked My Heels Three Times with Taylor Bias, uh, which will be in here in Wisconsin as part of the Wisconsin Book Festival later in October. Our next guest is Leslie Saints, but it is our fall pledge drive, so time to check in with Andrew here in the studio about what we will hope will happen in the next hour. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Uh, today, at this very hour until 1, we are doing uh, Carousel's Match Pledge. Uh, Wednesday's normal host for a public affair is Carousel Baird. I'm sure all of you tuning in are familiar with that. Love having Nate in the studio today, but uh, Carousel this hour is doing her match pledge up to $300. So if you donate $40, that suddenly becomes 80 because of Carousel's match pledge. So we are looking for seven callers uh, in the next 41 minutes. Oh, easy. Yeah, I think we can, I think we can hit that mark uh, with this, with this generous, um, generous match pledge that Carousel is uh is is extending to the work community um what nate as you have been engaging with work this week what has been sticking out to you as uh what the station needs the most oh the station has so many needs uh <laughs> just not, not anything like glaring but just like everything requires a little bit of maintenance when you run a facility right there's there's hardware needs the soundboards we just got new ones they're working to replace um we need uh, field mics for reporters that's kind of a perennial like mm, you could always use one more one or two more of those they're really useful to to uh, for building community to have to let reporters go out in the field so it's one of those ones that's high on our nice to have list and then of course there's just maintenance of the grounds and 
windows and roofs. And <laughs> I know the other day you said waterproofing was was, was a big yes, issue. And uh, given there have been much... some very scary floods in the newsroom over the years. Nothing nothing too bad, but makes you nervous. It's a good thing a radio station isn't filled with electronics. Um, yeah, folks. So you know, if, <laughs> if 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 you've come to rely on on Wart for the the type of coverage and, and especially a public affair, you know, I I am the soundboard engineer for Mondays, a public affair, and I'm with Douglas Haynes, and I get to hear all the different fascinating topics that he engages with and um every day's host is just like that so if you have come to appreciate the the wide range of topics that they are able to address we ask that you call right now at 608-256-2001 mary joe our receptionist is out there along with lynn who is our pledge taker you can also donate online at wartfm that's w-o-r-t-f-m dot org and you can click <clears throat> excuse me you can click you can click the large uh, donate button in the upper right-hand corner. And I'll just remind you, in this hour until one, we are doing Carousel's Match Pledge up to $300. So whatever you are donating um, will be uh, doubled by Carousel. So, um, Nate, I'm really enjoying this conversation, and I'm looking forward to hearing, uh, hearing the next poet. Are, are you a big poetry reader? Um, I wax and wane. Yeah, me you too. I, yeah, I have these I, very I have fallow moments. seasons and then very fertile seasons with poetry. It's one of those things that like that you need to build momentum for where it's like when you're in the mood, you're really in the mood. And then you're like, wow, I wish I had more of this in my life. And then you forget about it. Right. <laughs> for me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I enjoyed that last conversation and looking forward to this next one. So just one more time, folks. The number is 608-256-2001 or you can donate online at wartfm.org click that donate button in the upper right-hand corner. Great. And now let's get back to discussing poetry. Our next guest is Leslie Sines, which I mispronounced earlier. Apologies. Her book, Have You Been Long Enough at Table, is an examination of how it feels to be the subject of political power struggles, both in Cuba and in South Florida. She'll be discussing the book on October 20th as part of the Wisconsin Book Festival. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nate. I'm really excited to be here. So the, the first thing I was struck in reading your book was how present the state was in your poetry. Early on, they're like beating down the door. Uh, there's a lot of state documents that you sort of riff on. Um, wh why did you pick that sort of very political, very uh, um, power-centric uh, form to, to, to feature in your poetry? Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, the state has been... Um, pretty inseparable from my understanding of my family's immigration narrative, what it means to be the daughter of Cuban exiles growing up in South Florida, um, my parents' immigration status as well. Um, and I, I grew up in a deeply political household. Um, I grew up in a Fox News household, actually. Um, so very conservative parents, like many uh, Cuban Americans in this country are. Um, you know, every night I'd be eating dinner and, uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly would be there joining us, um, spouting nonsense and untruths. Um, and so I think I've always been really fascinated by not only the rhetoric of the state, but the talking heads that perpetuate that rhetoric. Um, and the danger of that kind of misinformation. Um, and so I think as I've come to terms with what it means to be a queer Cuban American woman, um, sort of existing 
and hopefully thriving in resistance to these forces. Um, I think doing that sort of historical research to um, understand what's led to our current moment um, was really vital to not just the way I show up in the world, but also uh, the book. Yeah, there's a wonderful history to your book. It, it really spans a, a whole range of, of Cuban-American experience, Cuban and Cuban-American. And uh, the, the, the amount of time that the, the two countries have been in dialogue is, is very palpable. Yeah, decades and decades <laughs> of muck <laughs> to and, sort through. <laughs> and generations and generations, different generations having different feelings about each other. And yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, I wanted to call it your, your poem, Massive Activity, which is sort of riffed on the uh, Operation Northwoods and Operation Mongoose, uh, mm -hmm. two CIA operations that they're sort of planned with not carried out against Cuba or carried out partially. You know, uh, you're, you have this wonderful poem that, that sort of deconstructs them and, and adds into them. And I was just really curious as to how you, you came to that and why, why those um, texts. Yeah, so um, that poem came about, I think, um, in version three of the book project. So I think in total, there were about five versions floating about um, before it was accepted for publication. And I think the real difference between version two and version three was um, this sort of reckoning, again, with the sort of conservatism of my family that I've referenced earlier, and more specifically, sort of breaking down their idolization of America, um, especially with respect to um, the way it interacts with their native country. And so, um, you know, in speaking to them about their own lives and asking them to serve as sort of primary sources for um the lives they led on the island and beyond, um, I think it was equally important for me to sort of question that sense of certainty around um, the sort of nationalist identity that they assimilated into and accept wholeheartedly. And, and part of that was acknowledging um, the horrors that this country has perpetuated. I mean, as you mentioned with Operation Northwoods and Operation Mongoose, um, a number of it were, were really planned CIA um, activity that was uh, essentially uh, planning out terrorist attacks um, against American citizens, but also um, Cuban people, um, and essentially uh, covertly then ascribing that violence and that terror to specifically Fidel Castro and his administration. Um, and I was really shocked when I came upon this research. I mean, even growing up in South Florida, um, where there's obviously a large concentration of, um, of Cuban Americans, this was not taught in our, in our schools. And I think especially now, we, if we want to get into this, the discussion of public school in Florida, it's probably not being taught now either. Um, but yeah, I think it was a really important reckoning for me to, um, to not just question, I think, um, again, that sort of nationalist pride that, that I grew up with, um, but also go into go into the documents themselves, right? Like to create a sort of intertextual relationship um, between uh, personal accounts uh, and 
and the sort of dark history that it's only recently been um, declassified. Yeah, history is one of those funny things that y- you can easily forget that people live it, you know, like it, it happened to someone. And mm-hmm. I, I really like the interplay in your book between sort of like this very personal, like, here's what's happening in my family, in my life. It's not not political, right? There is definitely mm-hmm. politics happening. And then sort of this, yes, this this abstracted view of the state that you get in, in as the background. It's quite, it's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Sort of the the other half of your book, I feel like, is is the re- the return to the sonnet, and mm. the sort of after you do all this fun stuff with politics, you you intersperse your book with a number of sonnets. Um, can, can you give me an idea of, of why you picked the sonnet and, and what role you see it doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you said, there's a series of American sonnets in the collection. I sort of consider them to be. Um, a structural framework for the book um, and that they appear in each section. Uh, and the sonnets themselves are written for and alongside um, the Orishas of Santeria, more specifically um, Las Siete Potencias Africanas, or the seven African powers in the Yoruban tradition. Um, and, you know, I it, it sort of came about from, again, uncovering a sort of familial archive that was Um, very much kept hidden from me. Um, I think it was maybe shortly after I had uh, graduated from my MFA at the University of Um, (laughs) Wisconsin-Madison. I had learned that uh, my maternal grandmother um, had kept a hidden altar in her home that had offerings and statuettes um, of the Orishas. And um, my, my father's second cousin, Um, was a painter um, who often painted portraits of a certain Orishas. And I think this sort of constellation, I guess, of of, of connection to this um, diasporic religion um, uh, really fascinated me um, and, and what it meant to sort of capitalize upon my own logging, my own longing, excuse me, around, um, around the island and its traditions and what actually um, became inherited from, from my generation. Um, and I think as far as the, the sonnet form itself, um, I like to describe the sonnet as sort of a beautiful box with beautiful wrapping and beautiful ribbon, but there's like a human kidney inside or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it, it, it really is such a perfect concise vessel that I think is is existing with this tension of, you know, longing and bottomless desire, but at the same time, you know, has to adhere to a set of formal constraints, not least of which is is really just the 14 lines. Um, And then when you take into consideration the sort of rhetorical turn of the Volta that's supposed to happen towards towards the resolution of the poem, um, I think to me, those kind of revolutions um, resembled my experience of prayer. And so I think combining, again, this sort of familial and ancestral longing with this container to me that felt um, as as bloody as it is beautiful um, felt really synergistic and organic. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, it 
kind of held everything together, but also was like a release. It was like a compare and contrast yeah. kind of thing. It was really interesting. I, I also wanted to call out that there's a couple poems that, that sort of touch on the idea. I don't know if explicitly of climate change, but of the climate and the ocean and sort of mm-hmm. this repetition of waves that, that comes through. And, and, and I, both Cuba and Miami, of course, very proximate to the ocean um, oh, yes. <laughs> where is the, where is the the ocean in your in your poetry like what, what do you, when you think of it what do you think of Ooh. oh I really like this question um you know I think I have a really complicated relationship to the element of water um the poem opens or excuse me the book opens with a poem called Nyo, which is dedicated to los balseros which are the Cuban rafters that uh, risk their lives um around the uh, the early 90s uh, and, and beyond, um, creating sort of makeshift rafts with unconventional materials to brave the 90 miles between Cuba and South Florida and the southernmost point of the United States um, in search of opportunity and freedom and safety. Uh, and so, you know, the history of the Los Parceros is absolutely passed on along the um, uh, around different generations of, of Cubans and Cuban Americans. And I think uh, coupled with that is a sort of fear of, of the ocean. There's this understanding of what it's capable of, uh, the violence that it can enact, um, and, and the unpredictability of it uh, and, and the ways in which sort of our interaction with it um, is uh, really subject to the power of the element um, it's a very difficult difficult element to sort of manipulate. So I think that that's always been there. Um, you know, growing up in South Florida, the element of water is everywhere, right? There's sweat, swimming pools, the beach, um, all of these humidity, right? So um, I think it's a texture that appears um, really often in my work because I think it's, um, it's pretty unavoidable um, in terms of the environments that I was writing about. But but to your point, too, about, um, you know, the uh, increasing threat of uh, climate change, particularly in um, coastal cities, islands, things like that. Um, to me, I, I was thinking about um, the ways in which that very specific peril can sort of function as a bridge, um, because there's, there's a sort of... Um, the Cuban American exile community in South Florida continue to have a sort of troubled relationship with um, the Cubans that are still on the island. Uh, And so I was sort of thinking of addressing the climate crisis um, as a means of bringing back that sort of piece of commonality between um, the two cultures and its divergence. And so I I hope that's successful. But uh, to me, it felt again, like um, a sort of obvious gesture to make as we continue to exist in the Anthropocene. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Leslie. That was our guest, Leslie Sines, discussing her book, Have You Been Long Enough at Table? Um, Before we go to our next guest, let's check in with Andrew and see how that pledge drive is doing. Andrew? Well, Nate, I got good news and I got bad news. The oh. good news is we got an anonymous donation. No, you always do bad news first. Okay, okay, continue. Darn. <laughs> well, the bad news is we don't have a bell to ding oh, because well, we, got the anonymous, <laughs> we got the anonymous uh, donation. We got a one-time $60 donation. Um, so that means... Oh, 
Here's oh the bell. God. Thank you, Jade. I'll, I'll let you do it, Nate. Okay. I don't think we'll be able to hear it, but here we go. I rang a bell. <laughs> um, we got a one-time $60 donation um, from a listener here in Madison. Their favorite shows are A Public Affair, Rockin' John, and BTTC. I'm not sure what that is. Not, um... But A Public Affair is up there. Heck it's, yes. It's, it's number one. <laughs> um, so that means that that donation counts as $120 this hour because we are doing a, a match pledge up to $300. Uh, Public Affairs regular host Carmelo will be matching up to $300. So we got $180 to go. And folks, we got about 24 minutes left. Nate, I want to get it back to you so you have enough time to to talk to folks. Um, yeah, but I just want to add that, yeah, smart money is donate now because it, your money counts double. So It does count double. And so you can, you can donate at 608-256-2001 or you can go to wartfm.org. That is W-O-R-T-F-M dot O-R-G. Click on that donate button in the upper right-hand corner. All right. Well, thanks for that, Andrew. Uh, our next guest is Alicia Deitzman. Deitzman? Oops, sorry, I'm not sure actually how to say your last name. Uh, but her book of poetry, Sweet Movie, explores spirituality and sensuality in dialogue with movies and photography. She'll be discussing the book at Wisconsin Book Festival on October 20th. Alicia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> So I, I wanted to start where you start with the Serbian filmmaker uh, Dujan Makaviev. Sorry, that's not how you say that at all. But uh, the tough last name. So <laughs> whose uh, movie is Sweet Movie? Uh, among uh, you have a couple other poems about his other movies too. Uh, why why him? It's a great question. Um, <laughs> um, I I feel like there's like seven elements to my answer. Um, one time. is just really simple. I really like movies. Um, I grew up in Prague in Czechia and was really impacted uh, early on by like Czech New Wave films. And kind of as I got older, I kind of got more into like French New Wave and like Yugoslav Black Wave. So that's how I first experienced Makaviev's work. And I was like, instantly struck by it. Um, I think you know, his, some of his more like conventional work, um, like Love Affair or The Case of the Missing Switchboard Operator, like that's for like my favorite movie of all time. That really impacted me, but I found like aesthetically, as far as my work, I'm probably more impacted by his kind of more like out there experimental, like sweet movie and like Wilhelm Reich Mysteries of the Organism. Um, those sort of, yeah, his kind of like later, more experimental work, I think um, I'm very indebted to aesthetically. Um, and I find that like kind of his like resistance to conventional narrative and the way he loves to sort of take like disparate things and bring them together into this like semi-cohesive whole is something that maybe is like almost like, I, I feel like for me, that's almost like what poetry is, at least, you know, for me as a writer is kind of like taking these disparate things and sort of trying to combine them into something that, um, has an order and, um, maybe says something that you didn't originally, you couldn't have seen with the, the separate elements, um. So yeah, just very, very um, impactful for me, kind of like, um, I always say aesthetically, but yeah, that, that's the major, um, probably the major reason why I, I first started writing about him. And it's not, it's not a project book, which I feel like sometimes the title's misleading. Like you might think, oh, you know, this is going to be about Dushan Magaviev. There's a few poems about him. Um, it is about a lot of different things, a lot of different artists. I think that's part of it too, is I, I'm very invested in this idea that, um, you know, we are speaking to artists that came before us, like we're in conversation with other artists. And I, um, he's just an artist that really kind of came to the fore and that I, I feel like I was like deeply impacted by. Um, and then I'm not going to get to like all like 17 elements or seven or how many I said, but the, the final um, thing I want to say to you is I think that like, I started writing a poem 
called Sweet Movie, which does not appear in Sweet Movie. I took it out. Um, and uh, that's partially because I felt like it didn't need to be there. I wanted the book to be the Sweet Movie. And I have this like idea that like, I love titles. I think they're really significant for me and really significant in my work. And I feel like I like to think of them as like bad guides, like they're taking you somewhere, but you're not exactly sure where you're going. And I, I'm very committed to this title as a way to read the text or a way into the text, but not perfectly. You know, it, it, it's, it's sneaky. So like, I hope that there's like a little treat where you're, you have this moment, like ideally where you're like, oh, that, that's what's going on. Um, but, you know, who knows if anyone will get there. So Very interesting. Yeah, because I feel like the, so much of the book is the, the, the poems about other art. And sort of this yeah. sort of fragmentary, just like, yeah, very, very, like I can see the movie, right? Like it's like clips and a clip and a clip and they're not, they're not perfectly related, but they, they build up into something. <laughs> no, that, that, yeah, excellent. I, I, I love that. Ideally, that's what's going on. Yeah, I, I'm, I, um, I wrote about contemporary art for my uh, dissertations. Like I'm really, I love art. I love um like I love looking, which is something that I think that I'm both terrified of and also like really invested in. Um, and I think too, sometimes art, you know, I use a lot of ecphrasis, obviously, in this <laughs> this work. Um, and art, like the whole text is a work of ecphrasis. Um, I think there's a way in which it's very difficult for me to get at the self directly. And this allows me to kind of get at the self in a more mediated way. Yeah, that the, the seems like there's a lot of photography and a lot of movies, like a lot of image art but then the image it's talking about the image not like what's in the image if you know what i mean like it's it's yes. <laughs> it's about the impression of the image i guess um yeah yes i think that's something that i i realized at a certain point it wasn't like conscious but i realized that when i you know um work with ekphrasis I am much more interested in like the experience I'm having and I don't even necessarily go back and like check for accuracy all the time. Often I don't because I'm just interested in kind of this like this moment where, where you experience something. I don't really know if I'm necessarily interested in, in getting at the art object perfectly. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of the art that that's in your book, it seems to be focused on the sort of late Soviet, early Soviet Eastern Europe world. Um, wh wh why that? era sure i think um i so i i am american but um my mom is czech american and i, I grew up um, in prague i moved there when i was six and lived there till i was 18 so like a strong connection to um that region um i uh so i think it's kind of like affected my um my aesthetics quite a bit kind of growing up sort of just in that kind of like post um communist era and we moved to the Czech Republic in 1995. Um, so there's still very present aesthetically. Um, and there was a lot of things I started to explore like in high school, it was a lot of the media that was available. Um, it's interesting too though, because I think when I came to the US it also became a way that I started to um, like reminisce about home a little bit, you know, cause that was often what was available. It wasn't like you could like, you know, watch a TV show easily that kind of caught the aesthetics of, of you know, your childhood, but I could, I could consume this media and, and feel a sense of connection. Sure. And then, uh, I've, I've, there's an other part of your book that's love by the light of, and like a series of things that love is by the light of. Um, and I, I, I kept thinking of like love by the light of television and sort of this like light source shining back. But of course there are many different ones that, that you explore. Why love by the light of? This is probably, 
I feel like I've had these elaborate answers and this is probably a really simple one. I'm just obsessed with light. It's a bit of a running joke. Like I'll just like wake up and like go outside and like the light. I'm always talking about the light and I'm just like really like the way like light falls on things. Um, I just, it, I don't know. I think like when I, when I think of a moment in time, like when I think of these love poems and I think of the people that I'm writing about, I think I just so consistently go to what the light was like. Um, what it looked like on their skin or what it looked like, you know, um, on the floor, or just like, I, I don't know. I think that's something that it's, yeah, it's not, it's, it's, it's a really simple answer, but I think I just, I find light like really like that's, that's where the memories are occurring. Like I, I think about the light um, and it became, I, I, you know, the love poem for me is much like a crisis. I think it's something that becomes a way for me to kind of get at the self or to get at things that I might be less comfortable talking about. Sure. Um, and I, I think, you know, I wrote maybe four or five and I was like, there's just light everywhere. And then it just kind of took off and you're like, well, we're, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to go with this. We're going <laughs> to accept riffing. that light is. A, yeah. <laughs> um, and then the, uh, there's another aspect of your book too, that I, that I want to touch on, which is uh, religion and spirituality, which I, I feel like comes through in a lot of your work that, that just in this book anyway. And um, yeah, I, I was curious to, to hear your opinion of, of how you feel like that inflects what, what you do. Hmm, okay. Good question. Um, I mean, it's been a huge part of my life. Like a lot of the other answers, I feel like I, I, um, I'm kind of like going back into childhood. I grew up in a very religious home. My parents are missionaries. Um, and it's still a huge part of my life. Like I definitely found in writing the book, it's not something, I don't know if one can be like post-religious, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I, I'm still would consider myself practicing, um, but because it, it just infuses like every part of my life. And it's definitely, I think there is a, um, sort of spiritual journey that I go through in the text. If there is a narrative, I'm pretty resistant to conventional narrative and I'm not a very linear thinking thinker. Um, but I would say there is a kind of spiritual journey if, if there is a, a journey. Yeah, right. It's more of like a, a trip with spirituality than it is like a, a destination that you're getting to. It's like you're like flying that. the plane with... Uh, yes. so, yeah, um, a wild trip, yeah. <laughs> Um, the one thing I just, I just want to touch on right before we, we have to head out here, but uh, I, I, there was all these 20th century artists and then uh, somewhere in, near the middle and then right at the end, you turn to Giotto, which I felt mm-hmm. very surprised by. Is that is that just another personal preference that, that, um, that speaks to you or wh- why him? I mean, I will say, like, I, I, you know, my, my work is more in like 20th century and 21st century art, my academic work, but I, I do love a lot of art, like a wide variety. That poem, actually, specifically, or the two um, Giotto de Mont poems, um, <laughs> they are both actually from a class that I took at Wisconsin on cannibalism. And I wrote a series of poems um, about hellscapes and cannibalism and hellscapes. So. Interesting. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they were very like sudden and surprising. I, I very much enjoyed when they like intruded in on this sort of very 20th century text, and then all of a sudden we're talking about Renaissance art. <laughs> all right. Well, that was uh, Alicia Dietzman talking about her book, Sweet Movie. Alicia, thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT. We're in the midst of fall pledge drive. So let's check in with Andrew and see what's up. Hey, Nate. We got an anonymous donation uh, from our friend in Monona. Uh, Their favorite show is The Wednesday, A Public Affair. So, wow. Yeah. I this... wish I could take any credit for that, but in fact, I'm sure that's all carousel. <laughs> it just Wonderful. became their favorite show today. Today, <laughs> But you know, Nate, as, as, as I've been listening to you and as I've been thinking about so many other, uh, other hosts here, um, 
one thing that that I always try and keep in mind is just how much time and energy every show's host puts into the show that they're prepping for. Um, for you, it's reading four books of poetry. For others, it's uh, doing in-depth research in you know local or national politics and environmental issues. And so, one of the things that I appreciate so much about Wart is um, that this this energy is coming from the community around us. It's you can get the same similar type of reporting uh, NPR, you know, on a national level. But if if you really want that local connection. This is where you get it. You get it from from WORT, from from dedicated volunteers in this community from all walks of life, donating their time and energy to bring you um, to bring you really fascinating content like this. I love hearing um, discussions of of you know the sonnet form and and ekphrasis on the radio. You know, I feel like yes, yes. Thank you, Wart. Yeah, there is something, I mean, Wart can get very cerebral, but it's also something wonderfully like South Wisconsin about it. It seems, feels very of its region. There are a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life that come through those doors that, that get to have their voice on the radio. It really does make it uh, a special community. And yeah, uh, community radio is always going to have community at its heart if it's doing its job. So I, I agree. It's, it's kind of striking sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's such a great um, kind of collage of of of, of interests and and um, investments in in the in the local community. Um, so our our anonymous donor from this past hour they donated ten dollars, and because we are doing match pledge uh, until one p.m. that. Uh, donation counts as twenty dollars. So Opens up the floor, though. There's still room on that there ceiling. There is still room. There's still room on that <laughs> ceiling, and uh, we're looking for five more callers. Maybe you've never donated to Wart before. Maybe you've been a longtime listener. You've admired us from a distance. Now's the time for you to join the Wart community. Um, maybe you've been thinking about, you know, you've you've given a couple of uh, one-off donations, and maybe you would like to consider becoming a a, a monthly a monthly donor. That helps us here at the station um, plan our budget a little bit uh, more concretely, and it gives us a better idea of where um, where our finances are going to be coming from. So go to 608-256-2001 or wartfm.org, that's W-O-R-T-F-M.org, and click on that donate button in the upper right-hand corner. All right, let's get back to the poetry. Our final guest in this hour is Erin Marie Lynch. Her book of poetry, Removal Acts, examines memory and memorialization as it relates to the Dakota people. She'll be discussing the book on October 21st as part of the Wisconsin Book Festival. Erin, welcome to the show. Oh, I see you're taking a drink of water. <laughs> Hi, Erin. How are you today? Oh, can you hear me? Hold on, we seem to be having some uh, audio issues. Anyway, it looks like maybe we just got a donation. Do you want, do you want to read us what uh, just happened there, Andrew? We did just get a donation. I get to ring the bell again for us. Uh, this one is from Sasha Lasden. They gave a one-time gift of $100. So if we can do the math there, because this is the match pledge hour, that is $200. Um, Sasha's favorite shows are Guilty Pleasures, all the queer programming and the local news. Thank you so much, Sa Sasha. Um, that that uh, we maxed out Carousel's match pledge drive. She was Excellent. She, yeah, she was All she right, was well, going to match until three hundred. We can talk about that more later. We got Let's first. Do it. Uh, it sounds like Aaron is back on with us with audio. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
Oh, our pleasure. Uh, so I wanted to start with the uh, the the theme of archiving remembering the the idea of this removal act uh, it shows up a lot in in your book um what's what's the importance of, of that sort of the archive or, or remembrance to you yeah that's a good question i think that one of the things that i was working through in the book was how to weave together um personal memory and then family memory and sort of cultural memory um and I think archives, so the book has a lot of digital archives, online stuff, archives that are in museums as well, and then sort of personal archives are objects held in families. And I think one of the things that I was working with was how archives become this physical manifestation of how memory and how history uh, is sort of this imperfect fabric that has gaps in it, um, things are missing, things are misremembered, um, things are lost to time, right, or, or suppressed. Um, and so thinking about archives as a place where memory is made visible in all of its uh, sort of imperfections um, and, and how those are like essential to the act. I like to think of memory as like an act in the present, um, how those are essential to kind of the act of making memory. Yeah, one of the recurring like a motif or title or whatever you want to call it like the is figure bracket question mark close mm -hmm. bracket, which to me feels very archival, but also is, is mm -hmm. yeah, just shows up so much in your book. Um, yeah, what what drew you to that as a sort of guiding principle for at least ten poems in your in your book or some some number? Yeah, yeah well, those poems started out. I think they started out as like a longer. They were all together together as one long piece with these like prose blocks that was sort of I guess it was sort of like a lyric essay prose poem sort of hybridy thing and then I broke them up and used them as this like organizing structure in the book um, in terms of the title I was thinking a lot because the book you know has this preoccupation with images that are missing that are not there um, that have been removed or are inaccessible for any number of reasons so I was thinking sort of about like, um, you know, a list of figures in the back of a book, figure one, figure two, figure three, figure four, and what it looked like to have instead this like figure of the question mark that sort of stands in for what the speaker of the book is trying to retrieve um, and trying to find about her family. Um, so the question mark becomes this like standing for many different people or for ideas or whatever um but then there's also this sort of like literal connection to what does it look like when there are no images and those images are gone yeah there's this moment in the book where you're doing this like family tree and you have me at mm -hmm. the center and you arching up and then there's a couple bracket question marks and it's just just a very haunting yeah. moment of like yes there, there are these people that are they're missing from the record and Mm -hmm. the act of trying to reclaim them. I, I feel like that's a big part of what you're doing, but also it's like, it's, it's incomplete and it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like I said, I feel like the incompleteness is just part of like what makes it, what part of like essential, it's essential to the work, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on the flip side, I feel like there's a number of your poems that sort of look at the idea of the museum or like the idea of like the documentarian, sort of this someone mm -hmm. else recording history. Um, and 
the experience of, of being in that space. Do, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like um, museums are sort of like institutional archives are definitely, yeah, again, a preoccupation or something that I think about a lot um, because partly because they become this place where artifacts or photos are actually preserved. Um, so there's uh, one particular in the book where I talk about this photo of one of my ancestors that's preserved, held in the collections of the British Museum, without which we may not, meaning my family, might not have access to it or it might not still exist. So there's this way where the institutional archive becomes this place of actually of like preservation and yet it's in this like, of course, very violent, um, you know, colonialist impulse to collect what is viewed as artifact. And then it's like part of what I talk about in the book is there's like a copyright towards that or on that photo. So we actually can't have access to it or ownership over it, even though it's of, you know, my family's ancestor. So archives in institutions are this interesting space where things are sometimes preserved or taken care of, quote unquote, right? They're taken good care of, put behind glass that protects fabric, for example. Um, but then there are also, you know, spaces where, um, yeah, where a lot of violence has been done in order to collect those things, or even, you know, whose family's photographs are viewed as things that are collector's items to be taken. So it's like a complicated space and one I'm really interested in. Often I feel like I come to things from because I'm an academic from like an institutional perspective or from within that space. So uh, it's like a fraught one for, for me particularly. And then I feel like on the opposite, opposite side of that arm is the, like the, the theme of the jacket and, and you trace this, this wonderful history of uh, your, this jacket sort of made by your great grandmother that you put on in a series of photographs or t- sorry take off in a series of photographs at the end of the book <laughs> can you talk a little bit about about the jacket and why you picked that as sort of the, the yeah end? yeah that's a good question i think that this like garment um that is this sort of this re- recurring object in the book becomes this really like this place where all of my questions that I have about ownership and authenticity and um, lineage and like uh, uh, inheritance all are sort of woven into it. Um, so this this dress was made by, yeah, my great grandmother who is non-native, but she made it in Campfire Girls, which is like sort of a, a Girl Scout sort of situation that I didn't really know about before I I wrote the book, but apparently a lot of people do or have had family members that have been in Camp Red Girls. Anyway, this is back in like the 1930s. Um, their whole thing was having um, sort of a, you know, indigenous aesthetic um, and customs. So she sewed this dress that's supposed to look like um, native garb. My mom ended up wearing it to Cultural Heritage Day um, at her high school in the 70s because she didn't have any authentic, again, quote, unquote, um, pieces of clothing to wear uh, to reflect, you know, her native identity. And then uh, a couple years ago, she sent it to me. And um, I was like, well, you know, what do I do with this? That's such a mom thing so, to do. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I don't, I don't really want this. But at the same time, it's like what we have, right? Generationally. Yeah. It's such a mom thing to do. So 
Um, for me, again, I did this video piece and there's these stills at the end of the book where the, where I'm, it's photos of me maybe taking it off, putting it on. Right. Um, and it becomes this, yeah, this image of kind of all of these questions, but on the, the actual body. Well, uh, <laughs> really a fascinating discussion. I, I really loved your book, but I'm afraid that does bring Thank us to you. the end of our show. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, Aaron. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, thanks to our other guests, Taylor Bias, Leslie Sines, and Alicia Dietzman. Thanks to our producer, Jade, for setting up the show. Thanks to Jay for engineering. And thanks to Andrew with helping us out with this pledge drive. Andrew, how are we doing? We're doing good. Uh, let me see if I can get this in for us real quick. Uh, we got a donation from William Hennessy from Valders. He donated a total of $100 to us. So wow. thank you very much, William. Thank you, Anonymous. Thank you, Sasha. And thank you, Anonymous. <laughs> Ah, I think we uh, well, I think that carousel strategy really paid off. Uh, that uh, matching, uh, it was a good way. It was a good way to 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 entice uh, to entice the, uh, the 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 wart world and good I mean, a good way to have us be um, reminded of her presence. But now we have to go to the BBC for the news. Thanks so much for everyone who listened and gave this hour.